One of the great truths of the Christmas story is that Jesus was born as a king. The wise men knew it, as we've just read from Matthew chapter 2. Mary was told it by the angel in the Gospel of Luke. The prophets had foretold the birth of a king. And Jesus, when he was born, was worshipped and heralded as a king. And not just a king, but the king. And we celebrate this. We sing about Jesus as a king. But have we stopped to think about why this is good news? Why do we need a king? Why should we want a king? Do we want a king? We do need a king, the Bible tells us. We should want a king. And if we believe the story the Bible is telling, we will want a king. And not just any king, but the king. Jesus. And in order to understand why it's good news that Jesus comes to us as a king, we need to sort of back up from the Christmas story and look at the big story the Bible is telling so we know why this climactic moment in the story is not only significant, but gloriously good news for us. Now, we talked about last week the fact that every part of the biblical story, and especially the Christmas story, begins at the beginning. It begins in the book of beginnings. It begins in the book of Genesis. And in the book of Genesis, we see why we need a king, and we see the beginnings of the promise of the good news of the coming of a king. If we start in Genesis chapter 1 and we start with the creation of the first man and the first woman, there are a few things that all of us remember when we think about the creation of Adam and Eve. We know that they were made in the image and likeness of God, unlike anything else in creation. They alone, humanity alone, is made in the image of God. We might think of the story we're told where uh, God put Adam into a deep sleep and removed uh, his rib and fashioned that into the woman and then presented the woman to the man and the man sang the first song or wrote the first poem to celebrate the gift of the woman to be his wife. But a part of the story we might not often think about is that when God created Adam and Eve, and said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness, that he also said, and let them have dominion. That's a kingly word, right? Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And just a couple of verses later, it says God blessed them, the first man and the first woman, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. We talk about that quite a bit. Be fruitful and multiply, but he also said, and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. In other words, Adam and Eve were created to be the king and queen of creation. 
under the rule of God over all that he had made, he set up Adam and Eve to rule the other creatures he had made. He gave them dominion over the earth, over the fish, over the birds, over the animals, over the creeping things. He told them to subdue, to exercise authority over those things that God had made under them. And their task was to rule righteously as God does under God's authority. But we know that didn't go very well. The first royal couple made a royal mess of things because they decided to act like they were king and queen apart from God. Instead of subduing and exercising dominion over the creatures of the earth, Eve listened to the serpent rather than to God, the ultimate king. And Adam listened to his wife, and they decided to do what they thought they should do instead of what God had told them they should do. So instead of exercising their authority under the rule of God, they decided to set up their own authority outside the rule of God. And as a consequence, they brought death and destruction into the world. They failed miserably as the first king and queen. And this royal mess that Adam and Eve made is going to require a royal remedy to come through another royal family. We saw last week that God's plan to restore the blessing to the world that had been wrecked through Adam and Eve's sin, God's plan for restoring that blessing was to uh, bring about that blessing through the family of Abraham, and particularly through the offspring of Abraham. But what we didn't uh, point out last week that uh, we need to point out this week is that Abraham and Sarah also have a sort of royal role, a sort of kingly role in God's plan. Did you know that Sarah's name means princess? And not only does her name mean princess, but God tells Abraham not only that he will be the father of a multitude of nations, but he says, I will make you exceedingly fruitful and I will make you into nations and kings shall come from you. And of Sarah, Abraham's wife, whose name, again, means princess, God says, I will bless her and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her and she shall become nations. Kings of peoples shall come from her. So God is going to restore the blessing that was lost through Adam's sin, through the family of Abraham, who's going to give birth not only to a multitude of nations, but to kings. And at the end of the book of Genesis, Moses gives us a glimpse of what this is going to look like uh, in the future when God fulfills these promises completely. He gives us two hints that God is going to restore his blessing to the world through a king from Abraham's line. One of the ways he does that is through Joseph. Remember, Abraham has Isaac, Isaac has Jacob, Jacob has 12 sons, and one of Jacob's 12 sons ends up in slavery in Egypt. But 
through a strange turn of events, he gets to interpret some dreams that Pharaoh has. And Pharaoh raises Joseph to second in command. He's almost the king. And he stores up grain in response to God's warning to Pharaoh that there were going to be seven years of famine. And what happens at the end of Genesis is that people from all over the earth come to Joseph to buy grain so that they won't starve in the famine. In other words, God is blessing the world through an almost king, second only to Pharaoh, who comes from Abraham's line. And not only that, but we're told in Genesis 49 that when, jo- when Jacob blessed his 12 sons, what he said to Joseph was, or excuse me, to, to Judah was, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. So what the book of Genesis is telling us is that we were made to rule. We were made to act like kings and queens. But what we have done instead is we have rebelled against God. And instead of being kings and queens under God's authority, we have set ourselves up in rebellion against the authority of God, tried to rule our own lives apart from God's rule over us. And that has gone horribly wrong, brought death and destruction into the world. And what God is going to do to remedy that is to bring a king into the world from Abraham's family who will bless all the nations of the earth. Now that is why it is so significant when God tells David, I'm going to put one of your sons on your throne, and his kingdom is going to last forever. See, so far, what we are doing is we are, last week and this week, is we are expounding the very first line of the New Testament, the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 1, verse 1, the first thing we're we're told when the New Testament bursts on the scene, as it were, and says, here's the good news, here's the gospel. The first thing Matthew says is, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Why is it good news that Jesus is the son of Abraham? Because through Abraham, God is going to bless all the nations of the earth. He's going to restore the blessing that was lost when Adam and Eve sinned and brought the curse upon the creation and upon us. And why is it significant that Jesus is the son of David? Well, it's significant that Jesus is the son of David because of what God tells David in 2 Samuel chapter 7. And if you want a place to camp out this morning, that's the place to turn and look in your Bibles. Is 2 Samuel chapter 7, as God makes this covenant with David about his kingdom. The story, of course, is that David wanted to build a temple for the Lord. It's kind of hard to believe, but all the way up until David's day, the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord had remained in the tabernacle, the tent that God had designed uh, and given Moses instructions about all the way back at the Exodus from Egypt. And the worship, the sacrifices, the priesthood, all of that was still connected with that same tabernacle that Israel had carried around throughout their wanderings in the wilderness. And so David, after he'd built himself a house, a nice, beautiful house worthy of a king, looked over at the tabernacle and thought, 
Something about this is not right. God ought to dwell in the house. If I'm going to dwell in the house, we need a permanent place for God to be worshipped. Well, uh, God told David, you're not going to be the man to build that house. Instead, I'm going to build you a house, and I'll let one of your sons build me a house. But the building of that house, that temple, is not the most important thing that's going to happen. In 2 Samuel 7, beginning in verse uh, 10, God says to David, I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. So you want to build me a house? I'm going to make you a house. Not a building, but a dynasty. Verse 12 says, When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. So, first thing there, God says, is one of your offspring, and we know that's a key word from the story of Abraham, right? This multitude of offspring, and a particular offspring who's going to reign and all the rest. God says to David, I'm going to take one of your offspring, and I'm going to establish his kingdom. The, the first king of Israel was Saul, and Saul was not much better than Adam, Right? Saul also rebelled against God. He was supposed to be a king under God's authority. But instead of doing what God said, Saul liked to do what Saul wanted to do. What Saul thought was best. So God rejected him as king. And one of Saul's sons never got a chance to sit on the throne. But God says to David, I'm going to put one of your sons on the throne. And I'm going to establish his kingdom. And in verse 13 it says, He shall build a house for my name, the temple, And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. Now, There's some really significant language there. God says that the king to come from David, whose throne he will establish forever, he's going to be like a son to God. And God is going to be like a father to him. Now there's a sense in which that's going to be true of Saul, or excuse me, of Solomon, David's son, who's going to reign on his throne. And that's certainly what the next part of the verse is talking about. It says, When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men. That's certainly talking about Solomon. And Solomon is going to sin against the Lord, and God is going to discipline him. But that language of the king being like a son to God who is like his father, that reaches its ultimate fulfillment when God sends his own son to be the king who sits on David's throne. We see that language all throughout the Gospel of John. John emphasizes that Jesus is the Son who has come from the Father. And then God says to David in verse 16, Your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Somehow, David's kingdom, David's throne, David's reign, 
that is going to be taken over by one of David's sons is going to last forever. It's not going to be just another kingdom that's going to end up in the history books with a beginning date and an ending date. David's kingdom is somehow going to become an eternal kingdom. And David recognizes something of the scope of this promise when in verse 19 he says to God in his response to these promises God has given him, he says, yet this was a small thing in your eyes, O Lord God, to do this, make these promises to me. And he says, you have spoken also of your servant's house for a great while to come, and this is instruction for mankind, O Lord God. In other words, what you have said about putting one of my sons on my throne forever, that's not important just for people who live right around us on the Mediterranean Sea. That's not just important for the people of Israel to know about where their kings are going to come from. This is something everyone needs to know. This is a part of how the one God is planning to establish His reign forever upon the earth. This is instruction for mankind. Now, when we take those two sets of promises, those two covenants, a whole bunch of things in the Bible, and especially a whole bunch of things about the Christmas story, begin to click and make a lot of sense. God has promised from Abraham's line to send a son who will restore God's blessing to all the nations of the earth. And God has promised to send from David's line a king who will rule and reign forever. And Isaiah understands what God is up to and what God is promising and what God is talking about. And so he says in Isaiah 9, To us a child is born, to us a son is given, And the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. How else are you going to have a king who reigns forever, unless he's God? Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And here's the good news about this child being born. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. What was so unique about David? Why is it so great that we're going to have a king from David's line sitting on David's throne reigning forever? There are lots of kings. God could have made this promise to. What's so great about David? David was flawed. David sinned. Yes. What made David then a man after God's own heart? David, when he sinned and realized it, he repented. David wasn't perfect. David wasn't flawless. But what you see in David is every time he turns away from the Lord for a period of time, he always turns back. 
His heart, his desire consistently over his life was to please the Lord, was to honor the Lord, was to do what God wanted him to do. And that's what God had established the kings of Israel for, was to put into practice the laws of God, the rules of God, to be an example of the righteousness of God for the people of God so that they would be drawn closer to God. David did that imperfectly. But from his line to sit upon his throne, Isaiah says, is going to come a son who's so much greater even than David that we will call him mighty God. That he will be the prince of peace. And we will celebrate the fact that his reign and his rule will last forever. It will increase forever. And then he says just a couple of chapters later, in Isaiah chapter 11, to sort of fill out this picture, he says, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. Now, Jesse's David's father. So this is still talking about someone coming from David's line. There will come a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his root shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. And then just a few verses later, it says this. Now, go back to Genesis chapter 1, before I read this. Go back to Genesis chapter 1, and remember, what was Adam and Eve's task? What was their role? They were to subdue the earth. They were to exercise dominion over the creatures that God had created ruling under God as righteous kings and queens. Here's what this king is going to do. This king from David's line, when he comes and he's anointed by the Spirit of the Lord, what's going to happen? Isaiah says, the wolf shall dwell with the lamb. And the leopard shall lie down with the young goat. And the calf and the lion and the fatted calf together And a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze. Their young shall lie down together. And the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra. And the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. In other words, when this king comes, he is going to restore creation to what it was like before Adam and Eve rebelled and went out on their own. He's going to be the kind of king that we were supposed to have in the beginning. And he is going to restore creation to the way it was meant to be before Adam and Eve rebelled against God and brought the curse upon the creation. This is why it's such good news when the angel shows up and speaks to Mary and says, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. Mary, your son is the son that God promised to David. Your son is the son that Isaiah was talking about in Isaiah chapter 9. 
and Isaiah chapter 11. Your son is the son who's going to reign over the kingdom forever. Your son is the son who's going to restore creation to the way it was supposed to be before sin and the curse came and wrecked everything. This is why it's so significant that the wise men, when they came to Jerusalem, they asked, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? They were looking for a king. And God wrote the story of the birth of this king in the heavens. So that men, even from the east, people who weren't Jews, came to Jerusalem. Why? Because the nations know they need the blessing of God. And it's going to come through His chosen King. This is why it's significant that Jesus, when He began His ministry, He began preaching and He began going around from village to village proclaiming the gospel. This is what He says, Mark 1.15 Jesus said, the time is fulfilled. We've been waiting for this for a long time. But now it's here. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. We know what that language, repent and believe in the gospel, means. We don't often think about what Jesus means when he says, the kingdom of God is at hand. What does he mean? He means God is restoring His rightful reign over creation upon the earth through His Son, from Abraham, from David, so that He might reign here over us for our blessing, for our good, forever. And Jesus says, now that I'm here, that time is here. That's also why it's significant that when Jesus was crucified, there was a sign They put over his head, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. They put it there to mock him. What they didn't know is that they were preaching the gospel. This crucified man is the long-awaited and promised Son whom God said He would sin, send into the world to re-establish His blessing, to re-establish His rule upon the earth, to reign forever for the good of all of those who will bow their knee to Him and confess that He is Lord and trust in Him so that His death and His resurrection will wipe out their sin and secure for them eternal life in His kingdom forever. Finally, this is why it's significant that Paul says in 2 Timothy 2.12, if we endure, if we persevere in the faith, in other words, if we endure, we will also reign with Him. And John says at the very end almost of Revelation, Revelation 22, 3 and 5, verses 3 through 5, he says, No longer will there be anything accursed in the new heavens and the new earth, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. 
They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever, just as we were meant to in the beginning. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus.